Welcome to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and advanced physics students from Roaring Fork Valley High Schools. The students spend a week working at the center during the summer and get to talk one-on-one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Patty Fox, and I'm hosting today's program, which was recorded during the teen summer program at the Aspen Center for Physics. With me today are Lander Greenway and Matt Rigney, rising seniors from Aspen High School. They will be interviewing Flip Tenedo, Assistant Professor of Physics at the University of California, Riverside. All right, Flip, so can you tell us a little more about your field and what you do? One of the central questions, uh, certainly that I'm confused about, is what dark matter is. And as a physics and astronomy community, we have tons and tons of evidence that there is missing stuff called dark matter. And we're pretty sure it's a new particle. We have evidence from telescopes, uh, from cosmology. The only problem is it doesn't seem to fit into our theory of particle physics. And every particle physics experiment that we've done comes up with nothing. So the big puzzle is uh, not is there dark matter, but what is it? What are some of the experiments you guys have done? As a theoretical physicist, I should say, I have done nothing because they will not let me near anything sensitive. <laughs> um, but the, the big progress in the field to date has been something called direct detection. And this is where you take gigantic vats of mostly xenon, and we can ask why xenon, um, and put it underground, heavily instrument it in such a way that if a dark matter particle soared through the earth and slapped into a, one of these xenon nuclei, we would see the nuclear recoil and, and say, ah, something that is not ordinary matter has passed through this detector. Well, it's a very complex topic, but how could that help our world in the future? Like, how could that further our society? That is an excellent, excellent question. Um, and it's the right question. I mean, what, what I do, what, what my field does, is study something fairly esoteric, certainly very separated from everyday life. Um, and you can ask, what, what is the value of this? And if you think about our, our society, like modern human society, um, and you look back and compare it to other societies, every human culture has had a cosmology, right? There have been thesis after thesis about Mayan cosmology, the way that ancient civilizations saw their place in the universe. And right now what particle physics is, is a way to understand not just, okay, what are small things that make up bigger things that eventually make up things like us, it's a story of who are we, where did we come from, where are we going? Right? There's this famous Gauguin painting uh, with, with that title. Um, if we understand what, what the basic building blocks of matter are, this actually goes hand in hand with understanding the early universe, understanding how our galaxy formed, understanding what human beings are in this rare instant of, of cosmic time. Um, there's something very humbling about that, and there's something... Uh, very unifying about that. So uh, one of the famous quotes by, I believe, Robert Wilson, um, when they were talking about building Fermilab, um, there was a senator who asked him, what is the, the point of building this big particle physics experiment? Is that going to defend our nation? Is that going to do something practical? And his answer was along the lines of, this will do nothing for national defense, but it will give us something meaningful to defend. Would you say that that's kind of the most rewarding part of being a particle physicist? That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's something very selfish about doing what I do where there is just an intellectual curiosity that you get to scratch, right? There's uh, being an academic, you say, well, there is a direction, there's a mystery here that I just want to spend my life or a good chunk of my life trying to figure out. And to have the freedom to jump into that in, a, in the style and the method that, that you want to is, is very uh, both liberating and, and um, it's a very guilty, selfish pleasure. Uh, the other side of this is education. And so as both of you will know very soon, you know, going to university, having physics professors, and, and um, transitioning from being a high school student to being kind of a, a physics apprentice, uh, this is something which I find very rewarding. Um, it wasn't that long ago that I was in your shoes, and I just knew that I liked science, and I knew that I liked science classes, and I liked science books. Um, but then this magical thing happened where you partner up with, with a professor and you do your first research project. And you figure out that it's not just learning about science that's fun. It's actually doing science and having this problem, which maybe it's a small, tiny problem, but no one in the history of the universe has ever worked on this problem before. And that's just super cool. Um, so being able to do that now as a faculty member and, and having undergraduates and graduate students slowly develop has been really rewarding. With your field, is it a very like fast moving field or all, all or or are all of your like discoveries very like slow and spread out over a long period of time? That's an excellent question. When you're a graduate student and you're trying to catch up to all the progress, it feels like it's a really fast moving field. Um, when you're waiting for the experiment to discover that that dark matter interaction that you've been waiting for, it feels like a really slow time. <laughs> um, I think the field, and, and let me distinguish between um, theoretical physics and experimental physics. So this is kind of special to physics. You never really talk about theoretical chemistry versus experimental chemistry, or theoretical biology and experimental biology. We're kind of a funny field where um, there's certainly a lot of overlap, but th there is a different tool set and a different way of approaching things that makes sense in physics where you have experimentalists who do these fantastic, nuanced, technological engineering innovations um, and search the data in a, in a very particular way. And the theorists who uh, our tools are mathematical consistency and how things fit together into a broader framework. And on the theoretical side, um, part of the, our job is to be nimble, right? We don't have to wait for uh, a large collider to be built, right? Our job is to see where, where do these ideas go uh, quickly and um, it was actually here at the Aspen Center for Physics last year where I heard my favorite physics joke. And if you'll, if you'll humor me, um, the joke was something like this. So there is a, a uh, brilliant uh, particle theorist. And one day she figures out something really interesting and she, she writes this amazing paper. I've, I've got it, she tells her friends. I, I've, I've got the theory of everything. All of these mysteries are solved. They all fit together. And, and this is the important part, I make this very concrete experimental prediction. So, okay, what happens next? She takes that paper, she goes downstairs, she talks to her ex experimental physics colleagues and uh, says, okay, here it is. You just have to build this experiment, look for this effect, and we're all gonna get Nobel Prize. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> so the experimental colleague says, oh, that sounds great. Uh, he writes grants, uh, has postdocs working on this. 
they get millions of dollars of funding. They build up a team. They build their lab. You know, this involves all sorts of new construction on campus. Uh, they have a bunch of undergraduates, a bunch of grad students working. Five years later, you know, after all of this work, all of this effort, you know, convincing people to, to fund it, convincing people to build it, they finally run the experiment. Okay, now running the experiment also takes time. So maybe two years after that, they've <laughs> taken data, they've gone through this really complicated data analysis, the likes of which the world has never seen before. No result. The effect isn't there. Oh my gosh. So he's you know, slapping his, his hand to his forehead. Very sadly, he walks up the stairs, goes to his theory colleague and says, I'm really sorry, we, we didn't see it. And then she looks up from her desk and says, ah, oh, can you believe it? I spent two weeks of my life writing that paper. <laughs> and that's, so, so that's to explain the, the kind of time scale between theoretical and experimental physics. And as a theoretical physicist, how do you come up with those theories and kind of write those ideas? Ah, great. Okay. There is a misconception where we sit down on some comfy couch and drink tons of coffee and generate <laughs> ideas. Um, maybe this is what you guys see <laughs> over here at the center this summer. Um, but actually, the thing that I hope you see, which is actually where the ideas come from, are the interactions between different scientists. Um, and what I never appreciated when I was in high school, where we had the same physics textbook, we took the same tests, we had the same homework problems, um, it's not very long before every physicist becomes really unique. Right? We're all our own little unique snowflake or flower or whatever it is, uh, because we've all found our own different paths. One person might decide that they're studying dark matter, but black holes are really interesting, so maybe they should study dark matter in conjunction with black holes. Somebody else might think dark matter is really interesting, but neutrinos are also interesting. They might have something to do with each other because they're both kind of invisible. Or dark matter is interesting, but cosmology is also interesting. And so you, when you put us all together in one room, we can all agree that, hey, we should try to figure out this dark matter mystery. But we all have different tools, and we all have different angles. And then maybe it, it's the case that the neutrino person says, you know, I've always been curious about what neutrinos do in the early universe. And then the cosmology person says, oh, actually, if your neutrinos do this, then we can predict da-da-da-da-da. And that's where the magic happens. What was your draw to physics, and then how did you pursue it? So I'm actually really nerdy. I, I got into physics through this book, The Physics of Star Trek. Uh, that, I read that in, I think, my sophomore year of high school, and it turned me both into a young physicist and a Trekkie. Um, <laughs> and I, I think what was really neat about it was it was the first time that I had seen science in, the, in a way where you could have fun with it and play with it. And the book really focused on the ways in which sci-fi writers actually played with actual science ideas and uh, where they had to bend the rules and where they were actually nodding to actual science. And I think that's what, that's how I feel now doing science, where if you want to try to think of something new or, or figure out some, some mystery that experimentalists observe, uh, it's not some, let me go back to my textbooks and do this really complicated calculation. It's kind of this, well, what other fun things can this universe do? Like, what, what do we not know that, hey, maybe, maybe there is a different kind of neutrino, or maybe particles do this weird thing, or maybe black holes form in this weird way, and seeing what the consequences are. And that's something which I think not a lot of people appreciate from the creative point of view. And seeing it in science fiction was a very natural way to, to appreciate that. So you said earlier that everyone has their own, like, slice, that they're like, this is my area, and I know everything in that area. 
What is your slice of dark matter? Oh, gosh, that is a really good question, because anything that I say now, there's going to be somebody else <laughs> with an overlapping slice who'll say, he's not the expert in that. <laughs> let, me, let me pitch it this way. I think one thing that makes me and a lot of people um, in my generation unique is when we were doing our, our PhDs in graduate school, very few of us were actually thinking about dark matter. When we were doing our, our PhDs, there was one gigantic question in particle physics, and that was, is the Higgs real? And if it's not, if it's there, um, why is it so light? Like, why, why should the Higgs be something that we could discover if we do discover it? And I had spent my PhD studying really exotic theories uh, to explain properties of the Higgs boson. So the Higgs boson was this thing that we built the Large Hadron Collider for. It was discovered in 2012, Nobel Prize in 2013. Um, and it looks exactly the way that the previous generations of physicists had, had predicted. So there I was, 2013, writing up my thesis on weird ideas of supersymmetry, extra dimensions, composite particles that did not show up at the Large Hadron Collider. And all the evidence that we got from the Large Hadron Collider seemed to imply that all of those exotic things I'd been playing with probably were not relevant for the Higgs. And so then what do you do? Um, well, a bunch of us kind of sat there and thought, we still like these theoretical particle physics games that we're playing. And it turns out there's a second problem in particle physics that's really big, which is, what is dark matter? And unlike the Higgs, where we weren't sure what it was and it turned out to be what we expected, dark matter is something where we've run out of expectations. This, this is really a huge mystery for us. And I think me and many of my, my generation feel like what we bring to the table are the tools we had from playing with the Higgs to build interesting models for dark matter. So earlier you were saying that the current models for particle physics, dark matter doesn't fit into that at all. Could you explain that a ah, little more? Perfect. Okay, so the, our current understanding of, of subatomic physics uh, has been confirmed and reconfirmed in so many different ways that we call it the standard model. And it works fantastically. The, the most precisely measured number in all of nature comes from a prediction of the standard model. And the standard model does not include dark matter. Now, there are zillions of ways to add dark matter to the standard model. If you walk around with the hallways here at the Aspen Center for Physics, you'll, and you shake people, they'll give you maybe dozens. <laughs> so it's not a problem of can you write down a theory that includes dark matter. It's can you write down a theory that includes dark matter that either uh, one, gives you a new way to confirm that theory, uh, two, maybe addresses an existing puzzle in the standard model that, that also needs to be solved, um, or three, um, is something that, that we wouldn't have expected before. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the fun game that we play. In the privacy of my own office, it's let me just do the most fun thing. But in public, meaning when you write a paper or, or give a seminar, it's, well, this really fun thing that I came up with is probably the theory of dark matter because look at all these neat things that it does. You talked about how you could be, as a theor theoretical particle physicist, you could be writing about certain things and then other experiments will prove you completely wrong and say that all that work that you did for your thesis has no effect 
or has yeah has no effect. Is that the most challenging or difficult part of your field for you? Oh gosh, that good question. Um, that's certainly something that I think we have to come to terms with very quickly. <laughs> and part of it is when you when you are spending every free hour of your life working on a particular theory, somewhere deep in your heart, you deeply believe this could be it. This could be the one. But over the course of a PhD, okay, well, if it's not this one, here's my number two choice. Uh, if it's not this one, here's another really neat thing. And then maybe by the end of your PhD, oh, number one and number three are dead. <laughs> and what keeps us going is the fun of actually being creative. I suspect, and this talking to my creator writing friends, I suspect this is a lot like writing short stories. You don't go into it thinking, this is the short story that tells the truth about human existence. You, you, it, the fun is creating lots of different stories and seeing how uh, they relate to each other and seeing what you learn from each story that you tell, right? seeing what you learn from each theory that you write. And it, what, I have zero expectation that anything that I write down in any scientific paper will literally be true. Uh, what I do hope, and what actually does happen off in the field, is that aspects of what we learn about the properties of the, the mathematical framework that we, we are working in become useful bits of information for people down the road. It, it may well be that a, a possible particle is not the explanation for dark matter, but that particle might be useful um, in two generations for explaining some other anomaly that people see. Maybe that, that is the key for understanding supermassive black holes. And so there, there is progress, even though it's not the Nobel Prize every time. So for you making progress towards kind of figuring out what dark matter is, what are, what are the steps that you're taking right now? Oh, great, great, great. So I, I think right now the, the approach that I'm really interested in is what are different ways of searching for dark matter that we haven't thought about before? My advisor's generation, my PhD advisor's generation, kind of had this cut and dry image of, Dark matter is probably this thing. They called it the WIMP, the weakly interacting massive particle. And people were so sure. This is such a beautiful theory of dark matter that they had it down. WIMPs all be behave in this particular way. And so here are the three or four different experiments that you have to do. And they got lots of funding and they went down this road and they built these experiments. And these experiments are still running, but they haven't found anything. And they haven't found anything probably a bit after we expected they should have found something if this WIMP idea were correct. So this may still be, the WIMP still may be correct, but more and more people in my generation feel like, okay, even if the WIMP is correct, the fact that we haven't seen anything might mean that we should be a little bit more creative. And rather than saying that I've got this fancy theory that has to be correct, I think a lot of us are thinking about what are the more interesting ways to search for dark matter? Rather than just burying this gigantic vat of xenon underground, uh, maybe we should be looking at the stars. Maybe we should be looking at nuclear physics. Uh, maybe we should be looking at exotic materials that, that could be sensitive to, to dark matter. Uh, and that's been a lot of fun because more and more this field, which, you know, when I go home, I put my hat on, I say, it says particle physicist. But more and more, that is interdisciplinary. And I talk with condensed matter colleagues. I talk with astronomers. I talk with cosmologists. Um, and these are fields that historically never talk to each other. How often do your theories get tested and how many of them do? And if so, do they like take 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? And will you ever see the results? Great, great question. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it is easy to write down a theory uh, that will not be ruled out in one's lifetime. Those are not the interesting theories, right? The interesting theories are the ones where you can actually apply the scientific method and test them. I think a more nuanced uh, picture of this is that the really, really good ideas are a framework. Maybe, like for example, one, one framework is maybe there's not just one dark matter particle, but there are two dark matter particles. And the way that these two dark matter particles interact is interesting and can give you different phenomena. You never necessarily rule out, ah, it's not one dark matter particle, it's two. Or you never rule out, oh, you, it's definitely not two dark matter particles. What you do rule out is, well, dark matter is definitely not this heavy with this interaction strength. Because if it were that heavy with that interaction strength, we would have seen it. So maybe it is more weakly interacting. Or maybe it is just too heavy that we wouldn't have seen it in a detector. And so we end up talking about this thing called parameter space. You know, it's, it, the framework may still be reasonable, um, but the particular numbers that go into the framework might be not what we expected. So when you're working and you kind of get stuck, would you fall back on something that had, like an explanation that had already been ruled out? Would you usually do that or not really? <laughs> We are definitely very good at recycling old ideas. We, yeah, we, especially during times where maybe the Large Hadron Collider isn't producing tons of exotic new particles like that we had hoped for. Um, you have to get a little bit creative and, and see what what were the really good ideas that maybe didn't pan out, but might have a nugget of truth that is useful for understanding the framework of, of theoretical physics. The axion, for example. So there's this funny named particle, hypothetical particle called the axion. It was conceived many, many decades ago, long before you were born, um, to solve a particular problem in particle physics. And people have known a lot about this for, for a long time. Around the 80s and 90s, this idea that dark matter could be the WIMP, this weakly interacting massive particle, became the dominant way of thinking about dark matter. And so everyone just believed this was true. And then right around the same time that I got my PhD, people started thinking, you know, it might not be the WIMP, what are the other ideas that we have on the table? Um, and one of the first ideas that came back up was this axion from many, many decades ago. Um, could this axion be related to dark matter? Oh, well, maybe maybe someone wrote a paper on that already. Maybe people study that. Oh, but now that we know more things about particle physics, let's take that old idea and tweak it and see what else can happen. And you end up with a lot of um, rediscovering old theoretical ideas and seeing new things can do as we have new... Uh, experimental targets that we want to reach. Can you explain the difference between like regular matter and dark matter? Regular matter we're used to. For the most part it's made of protons, neutrons, electrons. And if you want to be fancy the neutrons and the protons are made of smaller stuff. These are all things that fit into our framework of, of particle physics. We've discovered everything in, that's, that we call visible matter. Dark matter is the stuff that holds our galaxy together. If we go through and everything that we understand about the, the cosmology of the universe, the reason why we have galaxies and you know, clumps of stars is precisely because there were initially blobs of dark matter floating around space that gravitationally pulled in the gas and that gas condensed into stars. And, you know, a few, whatever it is, millennia later, here we are, the Milky Way galaxy. Dark matter is dark, meaning it doesn't interact with light. If it interacted with light, we would see it. To the best of our knowledge, dark matter is invisible, it doesn't bump into many things, so you can't touch it, smell it, see it, taste it, and 
if you want the real central problem in my field is given that dark matter seems to be impossible to put into a laboratory, how do you actually do science with it? If there's one piece of advice that you would give to any rising physicists like ourselves, what would it be? Okay, I have two. The, the general one is to be curious, right? I think the, the failure mode that I was really in danger in was I felt that physics was about I have to do this problem set, I have to do, get good grades, I have to do the next thing that I'm supposed to do. There's so many good things, even in ordinary, boring classical mechanics, where if you just stop and think, why, why does it have to be this way? Or how did we know that this equation has to be true? Um, that's where you start building up the, the intuition for research physics. And the second concrete piece of advice that I have is to do your homework. <laughs> uh, I think there has never been a point in my life where I thought, oh, um, there are these extra problems in the back of the book. Maybe I shouldn't do them. They look kind of hard. That always comes back to bite you in the butt. And it, it might be later on in life where, where you're doing a research project and there's this really complicated electromagnetic problem that you need to be able to discover the axion. Mm -hmm. And then you think, if I'd only done that problem in my second year of, of college, this would be really easy, but I cut a corner. So always do your problem sets. Thank you, Flip. That was great. And thank you so much also to Matt Rigney and Lander Greenway, both rising seniors at Aspen High School. Flip Tenedo is the assistant professor of physics at the University of California, and he's just a great conversationalist. <laughs> And you can find he does Twitter at FlipTonado. We'll look forward to the next Radio Physics. Thank you.